good evening, everyone who is here. Welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host tonight, Shantae Charles, and I'm excited about what I'm going to read tonight. We have been talking about white supremacy, (laughs) but we've also been talking about black theology and black power from James Cone's book. So tonight, we're hopping back into that conversation and discussion. And I think as I read tonight, I think you're going to hear kind of sort of what I would call echoes of the past that strongly relate to even some of the things that we are dealing with as Black people here in America right now. So we're going to hop right in. I am reading from the 20th anniversary edition. So if you have a copy of Black Theology and Black Power, it may not exactly line up with the copy that I have. Um, But hopefully you can catch where I'm at. In this version, we're looking at the section that is called Toward a Constructive Definition of Black Power. So we are right at the beginning of chapter one, and I am on page seven. So he started talking about um, what black power means. And so we're going to continue to have that conversation. I'm going to back up just a couple of sentences so we have a better understanding um, moving forward of what he's talking about here. The courage to be then is the courage to affirm one's being by striking out at the dehumanizing forces which threaten being. As Tillich goes on to say, he who is not capable of a powerful self-affirmation in spite of the anxiety of non-being is forced into a weak, reduced self-affirmation. I've really been thinking about that since the last conversation we had about uh, blackness, black pride, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, um, the whole conversation about Bonnet Gate, which is a continuing conversation. And I think this is so powerful because he talks about how you will be reduced into a weak self-affirmation. And I started again thinking about the question of who told you, going back even to the garden, with Adam and Eve, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that your state of being was something wrong? Who told you that your state of being was something unacceptable or out of order? Who told you that and why did they tell it to you? And the thought came to my mind about, um, you know, just our generations in terms of things that we have been told that have really come out of fear of the white gaze or fear that you would not be assimilated into a particular culture. And so a lot of people want to have kind of that the surface conversation, but a lot of people don't really want to dig into why they were told certain things. Um, And if that conversation leads back to, well, I was told this because my family wanted me to present well to please white people. Nobody really wants to have that conversation. So 
I'm hoping that we will get there as a people. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. We'll see how that rolls on. The rebellion in the cities, far from being an expression of the inhumanity of blacks, is an affirmation of their being despite the ever-present possibility of death. He's talking about black power and, and people responding to those words, some with, some with peaceful protests and some not. For the black man to accept the white society's appeal to wait or to be orderly is to affirm something which is less than essential, being. The black man prefers to die rather than surrender to some other value. The cry for death is, as Rollo May has noted, the most mature form of distinctly human behavior. In fact, many existentialists point out that physical life itself is not fully satisfying and meaningful until one can consciously choose another value which he holds more dear than life itself. To be human is to find something worth dying for. When the black man rebels at the risk of death, he forces white society to look at him, to recognize him, to take his being into account, to admit that he is. And in a structure that regulates behavior, Recognition by the other is indispensable to one's being. As Franz Fanon says, man is human only to the extent to which he tries to impose his existence on another in order to be recognized by him. And he who is reluctant to recognize me opposes me. In a savage struggle, I am willing to accept convulsions of death, invincible disillusions, but also the possibility of the impossible. Black power, in short, is an attitude, an inward affirmation of the essential worth of blackness. And again, I keep saying this. I'm like, how on one hand are you going to shout black power, but you're afraid of the white gaze? You're afraid of what white people are going to say or think about you. Let me read that again, because I think it's powerful. I'm going to read that again. Black power, in short, is an attitude. It's an inward affirmation of the essential worth of your of blackness. It means that I believe and I know that I'm worthy because I exist. Not because somebody is looking on me and saying what you wear or don't wear, what you sound like or don't sound like, makes you worthy. So if we want to talk about black power, black power stems from an inward affirmation of the essential worth of a human being. Do you essentially believe that you are worthy whether or not you align with whatever society says is popping and on and hot right now? Because I guarantee you in five years, it'll change. Maybe by next week, bonnets will be really popular and everybody will be wearing them outside after they've convinced you that they're unprofessional and uncouth. Society has a way of changing its mind all the time. So your worth cannot come from what society deems as acceptable. The writer says it means that the black man will not be poisoned 
by the stereotypes that others have of him, but will affirm from the depth of his soul, get used to me, I am not getting used to anyone. Well, we have people saying that right now, and there are black people pushing back against that. And if the white man challenges my humanity, I will impose my whole weight as a man on his life and show him that I am not that show good Eden that he persists in imagining. This is black power, the power of the black man to say yes to his own black being. And as James Cone pointed out before, he does direct a lot of this conversation to the black man. But the reality is, The black woman has to be able to say yes to their own black being without black community attacking her either. Yeah. Yeah. The power of the black man to say yes to his own black being and to make the other accept him or be prepared for a struggle. I find myself suddenly in the world and I recognize that I have one right alone that of demanding human behavior from the other, one duty alone, that of not renouncing my freedom through my choices. Black power and existential absurdity, next topic. Before one can really understand the mood of black power, it is necessary to describe a prior mood of the black man in a white society. When he first awakens to his place in America and feels sharply the absolute contradiction between what is and what ought to be, or recognizes the inconsistency between his view of himself as a man and America's description of him as a thing, his immediate reaction is a feeling of absurdity. The absurd is basically that which man recognizes as the disparity between what he hopes for and what seems in fact to be. He yearns for some measure of happiness in an orderly, rational, and reasonable, predictable world when he finds misery in a disorderly and irrational and unpredictable world. He is oppressed by the absurdity of the disparity between the universe as he wishes it to be and as he sees it. This is what the black man feels in a white world. There is no place in America where the black man can go for escape. Let me say that again, because some people actually think that they can escape. (laughs) There is no place in America where the black man can go for escape, whether to the north or to the south or to the east or to the west or to the Midwest. You will find people trying to police blackness. In every section of the country, there is still the feeling expressed by Langston Hughes. I swear to the Lord, I still can't see why democracy means everybody but me. I can remember reading as a child the Declaration of Independence with a sense of identity with all men and with a sense of pride. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Also undergirding that pursuit of happiness was the pursuit of property, but the word property was replaced with happiness. But I also read in the Dred Scott decision, not with pride or identity, 
but with a feeling of inexplicable absurdity that blacks are not human. But it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. For if the languages understood in that day would embrace them, the conduct of the distinguished man who framed the Declaration of Independence would have been utterly and fragrantly inconsistent with the principles they asserted, and instead of the sympathy of mankind, they would have deserved and received universal rebuke and reprobation. This was what was written in the decision. Thus, the decision read, the black man had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. But many whites would reply, the Negro is no longer bought and sold as chattel. We changed his status after the Civil War. Now he is free. Whatever may have been the motives of Abraham Lincoln and other white Americans for launching the war, it certainly was not on behalf of black people. Lincoln was clear on this. He said, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save nor to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving some alone, I would also do that. So this whole notion of the heroicism of Lincoln that keeps getting painted as history is actually not there. If that quotation still leaves his motive unclear, here is another one which should remove all doubts regarding Lincoln's thoughts about black people. I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the black and white races that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. Abraham Lincoln. And certainly the history of the black-white relations in this country from the Civil War to the present unmistakably shows that as a people, America has never intended for blacks to be free, hence we were labeled the Negro problem. To this day, in the eyes of most white Americans, the black man remains subhuman. And we know that 74 million people decided that they wanted continued tyranny as opposed to going towards actual democracy. Yet Americans continue to talk about brotherhood and equality. They say that this is the land of the free and home of the brave. They sing, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, but they do not mean blacks. This is the black man's paradox, the absurdity of living in a world with no, white, with no rights, which the white man is bound to respect. 
It seems that white historians and political scientists have attempted, perhaps subconsciously, to camouflage the inhumanity of whites toward blacks. But the evidence is clear for those who care to examine it. All aspects of this society have participated in the act of enslaving blacks, extinguishing Indians, and annihilating all who question white society's right to decide who is human. I should point out here that most existentialists do not say that man is absurd or the world is absurd. Rather, the absurdity arises as man confronts the world and looks for meaning. The same is true in regard to my analysis of the black man in a white society. It is not that the black man is absurd or that white society as such is absurd. Absurdity arises as the black man seeks to understand his place in the white world. He does not view himself as absurd, but he views himself as human. As he meets the white world and its values, he is confronted with an almighty no and is defined as a thing. This produces the absurdity. The crucial question then for the black man is, how should I respond to a world which defines me as a non-person? That he is a person is beyond question, not debatable. But when he attempts to relate as a person, the world demands that he responds as a thing. In this existential absurdity, what should he do? Should he respond as he knows himself to be or as the world defines him? The response to this feeling of absurdity is determined by a man's ontological perspective. If one believes that this world is the extent of reality, he will either despair of this reality or he will rebel. According to Camus's The Myth of Sisyphus, suicide is the ultimate act of despair. Rebellion is epitomized in the person of Dr. Bernard Rue in The Plague. Despite the overwhelming odds, Rue fights against things as they are. If perchance a man believes in God, and views his world as merely a pilgrimage to another world, he is likely to regard suffering as a necessity for entrance to the next world. Unfortunately, Christianity has more often than not responded to evil in this manner. From this standpoint, the response of black power is like Camus's view of the rebel. One who embraces black power does not despair and takes suicide as an out, nor does he appeal to another world in order to relieve the pains of this one. Rather, he fights back with the whole of his being. Black power believes that blacks are not really human beings in white eyes, that they never have been and probably never will be until blacks recognize the unsavory behavior of whites for what it is. Once this recognition takes place, then they can make whites see them as humans. The man of black power will not rest until the oppressor recognizes him for what he is, a man. He further knows that in his campaign for human dignity, freedom is not a gift, but a right worth dying for. So, last section for tonight. Is black power a form of black racism? We might get through it, we might not. But let's start. One of the most serious charges leveled against the advocates of black power is that they are black racists. Many well-intentioned persons have insisted that there must be another approach, 
one which will not cause so much hostility, not to mention rebellion. Therefore, appeal is made to the patience of black people to keep their cool and not get too carried away by their feelings. These men argue that if any progress is to be made, it will be made through a careful, rational approach to the subject. These people are deeply offended when black people refuse to listen and place such white liberals in the same category as the most adamant segregationists. They simply do not see that such reasoned appeals merely support the perpetuation of the ravaging of the black community. Black power in this respect is by nature irrational, does not deny the role of rational reflection, but insists that human existence cannot be mechanized or put into neat boxes according to reason. Human reason, though valuable, is not absolute, because moral decisions, those decisions which deal with human dignity, cannot be made by using the abstract methods of science. Human emotions must be reckoned with. Consequently, black people must say no to all do-gooders who insist that they need more time. If such persons really knew oppression, knew it existentially in their guts, they would join black people in their fight for freedom and dignity. It is interesting that most people do not do understand why uh, the Ashkenazim can hate Germans. They can understand that. Why can they not understand why black people who have been deliberately and systematically dehumanized or murdered by the structure of this society, why can they not understand that hatred? The general failure of Americans to make this connection suggests that the primary difficulty is their inability to see black men as men. When black power advocates refuse to listen to their would-be liberators, they are charged with creating hatred amongst black people, thus making significant personal relationship between blacks and whites impossible. It should be obvious that the hate which black people feel is not due to the creation of the term black power. Rather, it is a result of deliberate and systematic ordering of society on the basis of racism, making black alienation not only possible, but inevitable. For over 300 years at this point, more even now, black people have been enslaved by the tentacles of American white power, tentacles that worm their way into the guts of their being and invade the cells of their cortex. For 300 years, they have cried, waited, voted, marched, picketed, and boycotted. But whites still refuse to recognize their humanity. In light of this, attributing black anger to the call for black power is ridiculous if not obscene. To be a Negro in this country, says James Baldwin, and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. In spite of this, it is misleading to suggest that hatred is essential to the definition of black power. As Camus says, one envies what he does not have, while the rebel's aim is to defend what he is. He does not merely claim some good that he does not possess or of which he is deprived. His aim is to claim recognition for something which he has. Therefore, it is not the intention of the black man to repudiate his master's human dignity, but only his status as a master. The rebellion in the cities, it would seem, should not be interpreted as a few blacks who want something for nothing, but as an assertion of the dignity of all black people. 
The black man is assuming that there is a common value which is recognizable by all as existing in all people and he is testifying to something in his rebellion. He is expressing his solidarity with the human race. With this view, Camus' interpretation, I think, therefore I am, seems quite appropriate. I rebel, therefore we exist. It is important to make a further distinction here among black hatred, black racism, and black power. Black hatred is the black man's strong aversion to white society. No black man living in white America can escape it. Even a sensitive white man can say, it is hard to imagine how any Negro American, no matter how well born or placed, can escape a sense of anger and hatred of things white. And another non-black, Arnold Rose, is even more perceptive. Here's what he had to say. Negro hatred of white people is not pathological, far from it. It is a healthy reaction to oppression, insult, and terror. White people are often surprised by Negroes' hatred, but it should not be surprising. The whole world knows the Nazis murdered millions of Jews and can suspect that the remaining ones are having some emotional reaction to that fact. Negroes, on the other hand, are either ignored or thought to be so subhuman that they have no feeling when one of their number is killed because he was a Negro. Probably no week goes by in the United States that some Negro is not severely beaten and the news is reported in the Negro press. Every week or maybe twice a week, almost the entire Negro population of the United States suffers from an emotional recoil from some insult coming from voice or pen of a leading white man. The surviving Jews had one big soul-wracking incident that wrenched them back to group identification. The surviving Negroes experienced constant jolts that almost never let them forget for even an hour that they are Negroes. In this situation, hatred and group identification are natural reactions. Mm, mm. Mm. And now that people have had what? Nine, I think it was nine minutes or something like that. Nine minutes and some seconds of watching someone's life being taken. The whole world got a chance to see that on film. They can go back and replay it as many times as they want. So as he says... One group has one soul-wracking incident that ties them to group identification. Black people experience constant jolts. That's why we have whole hashtag programs around here. There's constant jolts that never let us forget for one hour that we are black in this country and that someone who doesn't see the, us as human can think it's their job to take a life. James Baldwin was certainly expressing the spirit of this when he said, the brutality with which Negroes are treated in this country simply cannot be overstated, however unwilling white men may be to hear it. In the beginning, and neither can this be overstated, a Negro just cannot believe that white people are treating him as they do. He does not know what he has done to merit it. 
And when he realizes that the treatment accorded him has nothing to do with anything he has done, that the attempt to destroy him, for that is what it is, is utterly gratuitous, it is not hard for him to think of white people as the man with the pointy horns. This feeling should not be identified as black racism. Black racism is a myth created by whites to ease their guilt feelings. As long as they can be assured that blacks are racist, they can find reasons to justify their own oppression of black people. This tactic seems to be a favorite device of white liberals who, intrigued by their own unselfish involvement in civil rights for the Negro, like to pride themselves on their liberality toward blacks. White racists who are prepared to defend the outright subjugation need no such myth. The myth is needed by those who intend to keep things as they are while pretending that things are in fact progressing. When confronted with the fact that the so-called progress is actually non-existent, they can easily offer an explanation by pointing to the white backlash caused by black racism. But the charge of this cannot be reconciled with the facts. While it is true that there are blacks who hate whites, black hatred is not racism. Racism, according to Webster, is the assumption that psychocultural traits and capacities are determined by biological race and that races differ decisively from one another, which is usually coupled with the belief in the superiority of a particular race and its rights to dominate over others. Where are the examples of among blacks in which they sought to assert their right to dominate others because of their belief in black superiority? The only possible example might be those who have accused the black Muslims. And even here, there is no effort of black Muslims to enslave white people. Furthermore, if we were to designate them as black races, they certainly are not dangerous in the same sense as white races are. The existence of the black Muslim does not entitle whites to speak of black racism as a threat to the American society. They should be viewed as one possible reaction to white racism. But in regard to black power, it is not comparable to white racism. Stokely Carmichael responding to the charge of black supremacy wrote these words. There is no analogy by any stretch of definition or imagination between the advocates of black power and white racists. The goal of the racist is to keep black people on the bottom arbitrarily and dictatorially as they have done in this country for hundreds of years. The goal of black self-determination and black self-identity, black power, is full participation in the decision-making process affecting the lives of black people. Modern racism is European in origin and America has been its vigorous offspring. It is the white man who is sought to dehumanize others because of his feelings of superiority or for his economic advantage. Racism is embedded in this country, and so it is hard to imagine that any white person can escape it. Black power then is not black racism or black hatred. Simply stated, it is an affirmation of the humanity of blacks in spite of white racism. It says that only blacks really know the extent of the oppression and thus they are prepared to risk all to be free. Therefore, it seeks not understanding, but conflict. It addresses black people and not white people. 
It seeks to develop black support, but not necessarily white goodwill. Black power believes in the utter determination of blacks to be free and not in the good intentions of white society. It says, if blacks are liberated, it will be black people themselves who will do the liberating. So, James Cone on black power, what it is and what it is not. All right. So, the next time we venture back into this book, we are going to talk about why integration is not the answer. Now, he was writing this. This is originally 1969. Then he comes back and revises it in 1989. And here we are in 2021. And a lot of people at this point would probably agree with him that integration is not the answer. I'm going to say there was no real true integration because integration means you come over here and we go over there. That's not what happened. America has never integrated, by the way. Um, Most of America is still redlined from schools to housing to just about everything. It's still separate. It's just not out in the open anymore like it was. The other part he's going to talk about is, is there an appropriate response to white racism? And then how does black power relate to white guilt? So that's what we will dive into the next time we pick up this book. All right. If you would like to share on tonight, you can type I'm in. And we will add you in. If you are listening by anchor tonight, I want to thank you for your time and attention. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. And I've been your host tonight, Shante Charles. We will be back tomorrow for um, Healthy, Wealthy, Wise. And we'll be talking genetics and neuroscience. Take care and God bless.